Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Well, as many of you know, uh, I was out of town this past weekend and uh, last weekend. Christy did a great job uh, filling in, I heard, so thank you, Christy. Well, I wanted to give you just a little update on where I was and what was happening because it was unbelievable what the Lord was doing. Uh, I want to, uh, before I, I give you that, I want to give you just a, a quick second on what's happening in this hour in relationship to the building of houses of prayer. You know, we're in an hour right now where it's very obvious things are getting crazy, hard times are uh, have happened or in the midst of and are coming. And if you're not on the edge of your seat about the and are coming. I just want to warn you, there are way worse things coming than what we've experienced already. We are just at the beginning of difficulties that are coming. And that's a very sobering and uh, you know, tough concept to, to get your heart wrapped around. But one of the kindnesses of the Lord, and it's one of the most important things in this hour, one of, not the most, but one of the most important things in this hour, is that the Lord as a preemptive strike against the wickedness that's rising is the Lord would call people to start houses of prayer. That there would be cities all over the earth that are contending hours a day, all day, day and night, that are contending, you know, all week long for revival, for God's protective graces. This is a very important hour. And so I just want to say to you, while we see the news and our hearts are just, you know, they sink over the news reports, the constant craziness and difficulties. We need to recognize that this is also the hour where the Lord is raising up the response. And that is houses of prayer like this one that are starting all over little cities all across America and all across the earth. So it's a very uh, important part of the hour that we're living in is that it's not just the kingdom of darkness moving forward. It's also the kingdom of light advancing. And uh, and so I just want to tell you, last weekend, in the craziest swirl, uh, myself and then Daniel went with me, uh, Daniel's our uh, uh, head worship leader, uh, Daniel went with me, we were able to go and minister at and be a part of four different houses of prayer in California. Uh, one of them uh, was, we were there at the inauguration service, like this was their first prayer meeting, and the, the pastor of this church that's starting a house of prayer, he said, Brad, would you be there? I, I just want you to pray. And I got to be there and, and pray. That was really cool. Then there was a uh, house of prayer that we're really well connected with, uh, Cheryl Allen. Many of you guys know her in Pasadena, uh, International House of Prayer, uh, Pasadena International House of Prayer. I got to minister there to their night watch, which is launching, and got to kind of give a charge for their night watch, which is just incredible. Their desire is to be 24-6, and they're on their way uh, to be that. They, they're intentionally not open on Sundays. Then there was a house of prayer that actually brought us into town to do consulting for the weekend. And this uh, house of prayer was in the Oakland area, and uh, they are specifically ministering to the Latino community. And so everything that we did, we did a conference and consulting. Everything was translated uh, into Spanish, which is awesome and also exhausting uh, to uh, do so many sessions that are getting translated because it really takes a lot of mental willpower to stop and let the translator translate and then stop and then do it again. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, 
Anyway, but we got to help them kind of with a hard launch in their new facility and do a conference there and it was well attended for their size community. It was just an awesome time. And then there was another house of prayer that invited us to come on a Sunday morning at a local church that they meet at to be able to minister. And uh, what I was told from the reports there was that was so encouraging to them just to get a fresh perspective on a life of prayer, cultivating a life of prayer, friendship with Jesus. And so... I just look at it, I'm like, oh my gosh, in one weekend, we were able to touch four houses of prayer that the Lord is strengthening in order that they might wind up being able to grow and, and wind up being night and day and have people coming from all these different churches. And, and so uh, it was a really awesome, exciting time. And I just want to thank you because it meant a lot that we were able to free ourselves up to be able to go out of town to do that. But I also want to just get you that perspective about what we're getting to be a part of even beyond the walls of this house of prayer. We've got a lot of mission happening right now in this season of helping strengthen other ministries that are trying to do this whole night and day prayer thing. It's really cool. It's part of our calling from our very beginning is that this ministry would help start fires all over the place. And so here we are now in a season at year 16 where we're really starting to do that uh, kind of at an uh, increased pace, uh, increased clip. So it's pretty fun. Okay, well, now I'll pray. Father, we thank you so much for the word. We ask you tonight to help us to understand Revelation 16 and the seventh seal, uh, seventh uh, bowl. We pray, God, that you would help us tonight, that these words would uh, resonate in us, that you would help us tonight to have revelation about why we even have the book of Revelation. Why does it exist? Why do the details even matter? Would you make them alive tonight to us in Jesus' name? Amen. We're in our series on the book of Revelation. This session is entitled The Completion of Judgment, and it's also the seventh bowl. So I, I called it The Completion of Judgment because I think that's really more what is happening in the passage, though you might more commonly be uh, um, familiar with the passage as the seventh bowl of wrath or the last bowl. Well, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to kind of flip-flop the last session that I did with you guys. In the previous session, we were focused on the sixth bowl, but we talked a little bit about the seventh. Tonight, we're going to talk about the seventh bowl, but we're going to reference the sixth a little bit. Because these two bowls go so closely together because of the, the, uh, the nature of the final battle, the battle of Armageddon, the nature of that final battle, but also what else is happening at the same time. So really, the last session and this session, they go together so closely, uh, but our focus and our emphasis is going to be uh, different tonight than it was uh, in the last one. All right, so here, uh, Revelation 16, I'm looking at uh, verse 17 through 21. The angel poured out his bowl into the air, the seventh angel, poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it had ever occurred since mankind had been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great. That was, we were just talking about Harlot Babylon in our little intro here earlier. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Hey, Luke Fredenberg, would you turn the house lights up a little bit? 
All right, so uh, in this situation, a little more. There we go. Yep. Uh, in this situation, we've got the greatest shaking known to man. And these details are unfathomable. I mean, if you looked at any one of them, you're like, that is going to tilt the whole planet. You start to line these details up like we just read, and this is all part of the seventh bowl. Just think of all the crazy stuff that must be in that bowl, that when it gets poured out, all this stuff dumps out. Because all of this is the package deal of the seventh bowl judgment. So these are not like one happens and then a year later one happens and a year later one happens. This is the final judgment. This is a, the completion of judgment. It's the last one. All this stuff gets dumped out in the same moment and it is really intense. Not surprising, the end of this passage tells us that man's hard-hearted continued response to God is that people curse God because the plague was so terrible. So in the midst of this, so interesting to me, the storyline of wicked men in the last generation able to look at God and say, that's God, and we're mad at him. We don't like him, and we're cursing his name. So it's not like they're unfamiliar with who God is, and it's not like they're unfamiliar with who the source of these judgments might be. They know exactly who the source is and yet still deny him, still choose their own way. The iniquity that is pent up in the human heart is just unfathomable. Well, just as a little point of uh, intro for our future sessions, because we're about to get into Revelation 17 and 18, which is all about the harlot Babylon. It's all about the decay of the human heart at the end of the age. It's talking about the increase of wickedness that will cause the love of most to grow cold. It's interesting that that's what follows this statement right here, the end of Revelation chapter 16, that it says, men's hearts were so wicked at the end that they could look right at God and curse him because of the plagues, the judgments that were intended to teach them righteousness, were intended to get them to repent. The human heart was in such a place of decay that they looked at it with all the information in front of them and still chose evil. If you want to understand what the harlot Babylon at the end of the age is, it's all of the workings that happen within culture, within religion, within economics, within governmental institutions. It's all of the decay that would cause an entire society with all the information in front of them to still choose wickedness. That's what we're looking at when we talk about the harlot Babylon. Now, I want us to just, I know we did this last session, but I want us to just give a little quick look again at what all is over, uh, overturning, over happening, I don't know, whatever, probably the word over shouldn't be in that sentence at all. Whatever is happening all at the same time here, simultaneous uh, actions or simultaneous scenarios that are all occurring, bottom of page one. First, the battle of Jerusalem is taking place, so we want to understand the uh, details that we're reading here in the seventh bowl, we want to understand the battle of Jerusalem where Jesus is fighting and all the wicked are there. That's all happening while this bowl is being poured out. It's the same time frame. The city of Jerusalem is being split into three sections. Hundred pound hailstones are flung down upon men. The whole planet is violently shaken. The cities of the earth crumble in the earthquake and all of the islands disappear from the face of the earth as well as the mountains. Friends, this is the craziest moment maybe in the whole Bible. It's unbelievable what is transpiring here. 
These are future events that are all tied to one judgment where God's like, whammo, here's the final one. Boom. This is the last one. He pours out all the fullness of his wrath in this bowl on earth, and it's aimed at the whole harlot Babylon system. It's really intense. I gave you part D at the top of page two. Just if you wanted some verses to look up, and there's a ton of them all throughout this whole session that you can see. This is a major theme in scripture. When I say this, I mean the seventh bowl. Now, what's veiled is so many times the seventh bowl is referenced all throughout the Old Testament, Old Testament prophets, and other places even in the New Testament. So many times when it's referenced, it's not referenced as the seventh bowl. It's referencing details that are included in the seventh bowl. We didn't know until John wrote the book of Revelation and he typed it out or you know wrote it out and said, this is the seventh bowl. We had no idea. All those judgments that we had read about in the Old Testament were all happening together at the same moment called the seventh bowl of God's wrath. The Old Testament prophets were typically given little insights, little snippets. They could see one aspect of it, this aspect, this aspect. But John was allowed to see it all happening at the same time. Just imagine his mind being blown as he's realizing all of these Old Testament prophecies all being fulfilled in the same crazy judgment day. So I gave you a bunch of the verses there for you to be able to go back and look and see different pieces. And not all of those are direct prophecies. Some of them uh, allude to the prophecy and give you uh, some background. Anyway, it's helpful if you want it. The Armageddon storyline. Now, we talked about this a little bit already, but I want to make sure that we're clear that what is uh, commonly referred to as the Battle of Armageddon isn't exactly, that's not exactly the right way to say that. Uh, I know that's how we say it, but that's not actually what the Bible says. So let's read what the Bible says, Revelation 16, 16. Then they gathered the kings together to the place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. It's a place, it's not necessarily the battle of but it's the place called Armageddon, which is the valley outside of Jerusalem. And just the way that Jerusalem is positioned, up kind of in a cleft of a mountain almost, is the primary and really the, the only wide entrance to be able to get into Jerusalem is up through this valley. Now, of course, in modern day, there's other streets and such that are going up there, but, but it's, this is kind of the main way into Jerusalem. This is the easiest path, and that's one of the reasons that they gather down there because their intention is this huge army is planning to siege Jerusalem to come up into Jerusalem. Well, the part that I want to set the record straight on, when we talk about the Battle of Armageddon, the battle, this battle is the final battle of a long campaign of battles. And I want to read you a snippet out of uh, Daniel chapter 11 that helps us understand not the fullness of the campaign, but how this ties into the campaign. Because what we're reading about in Revelation 16, this final battle, it's not isolated. It's not like the only thing that's happening. It's the capstone battle on a whole campaign of battles. And I want us to read uh, Daniel chapter 11 so that we can kind of see a little bit of what that campaign looks like, how it starts, not exactly starts, but, but a snippet of it, okay, that the prophet Daniel was able to see. This is uh, talking about the Antichrist. He will attack the mightiest fortresses, fortresses, multiple, with the help of a foreign god, Satan. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will swarm out against him. It's talking about two different kings, two different armies and groups that are going to attack the Antichrist. 
He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall. He will extend his power over many countries. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Him pitching his tents at the sea between uh, uh, seas at the beautiful holy mountain. This is talking about the battle that's in Revelation 16. That's how this passage ends that we just read in Daniel 11. It ends where Revelation 16 kind of picks up. Okay, talks about this final battle. He pitches his tent, but it says, "Yet his end will come, and no one will help him." He's going to actually have all the armies of the earth. But no one will be able to help him succeed. His end will come. This is his final end. There's, you can only have the end of the Antichrist one time. This is the end of the Antichrist, is this final battle. And it won't matter how many armies, how many this, how many that, because Jesus and his armies are going to march out against him. Okay, we covered that in a previous session. Keep going. Let's cover, uh, yeah, uh, part D on page three, if you got the notes. One final battle when Jesus steps out of Jerusalem. This is another uh, snippet, another picture of what's occurring at this final battle. Look at Isaiah 31, 4 through 5. The Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. This is talking about the most epic battle ever where surely Jerusalem is doomed. They're outnumbered a bajillion to one. And it says, nope, God will come down and he will shield it. What's the shield? Himself and the armies with him. You know, if you've got a bunch of resurrected saints that can't die and they're all marching into the camp of the enemy, that's like a shield. It's a mighty, glorious shield. He's going to step down and he's going to fight on behalf of Jerusalem. All right. I wanted us to get the battle side of things because now we're going to look at the rest of this and I just kind of want you to picture this battle happening while all these other crazy events are occurring. The word of God says a time is coming where, he, where the Lord will shake everything that can be shaken. Revelation 16, 18 gives us a little bit of a picture into that. We just read it. There came flashes of lightning rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it had ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The greatest earthquake ever. If you've got the greatest earthquake ever, you have got something that has the capacity to shake everything that can be shaken. And it will be. The moment of the great shaking was actually prophesied about elsewhere in the scripture. Let me read you the Hebrews 12 account, top of page 4. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The word once more indicates the removing of what can be shaken. That is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken will remain. Now, we just read that this Revelation 16, 18 says there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. The rumblings, peals of thunder is actually happening in the heavens. And so it's part of the shaking. It's almost like, I don't know, it's, this is probably not an accurate picture, but just imagine if God really was going to reach his big old hand down out of heaven 
and grab the earth and shake it like a snow globe? Well, before he shakes it like a snow globe, his hand touches the atmosphere. And as his hand touches the atmosphere, even that touch is causing the heavens to shake. And there's this, it's this pre-shaking. Even before the earth gets shaken, the heavens are shaking. Okay? Well, we're looking here at the return of the king. I'm going to give you the Haggai 2, which is the actual uh, reference, Old Testament reference of the verse we just read in Hebrews. But I want you to read the context of this promised Haggai 2, 6 through 8 shaking. So again, some of the language is going to sound familiar because we just read it in Hebrews. But the Hebrews account was interpreting it a little bit. Let's go back to Haggai and just see straight up what the prophet said. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The desired of all nations is my favorite term for Jesus Christ. The desired of the nations, the one that every nation actually desires, it's Jesus. And it's Jesus coming to make Jerusalem great, to reestablish the temple, to have night and day prayer and worship be the reality in Jerusalem. Or you could say it this way, I will fill this house with glory. That's how it reads right there. This is actually prophesying the return of the king. And the return of the king is in conjunction with everything that can be shaken, being shaken. Land, sea, heaven, sky, nations, everything. If it can be shaken, it's going to be shaken. That's this verse in Haggai chapter 2. But it's tied to, and then the king will come, and he'll set up the millennial government. It's on the tail ends of the shaking. In the most direct answer to prophecy, Revelation chapter 16, that prophesies this great earthquake that's unlike any earthquake that's ever happened, that also quakes the sky, which we also find out quakes the mountains, and quakes the islands, and quakes the sea, and quakes the nations, and quakes everything... It's actually the greatest fulfillment. It's the fullest fulfillment of the prophecy in Haggai chapter 2. All right. Well, let's keep going. Impact on the cities of the earth. Let's read that part. Revelation 16, 19. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. And God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Jerusalem is divided. This is talking about the city of Jerusalem. This great city is divided into three parts, and this is part of the uh, impact of the shaking. It's actually interesting, because if you didn't pay attention, the very next line is, yeah, this one city, it splits into three parts. That's bad. That city actually gets it the easiest, because all the other cities straight up collapse, so it's like God has divine purposes for Jerusalem. I have no doubt that three-way splitting is going to be strategic. There, that's not going to be accidental. It's not like it just shakes and then breaks into some number of pieces. It splits into three parts. I know the Lord's purposes are going to rest on those three parts, having intentionality, where those fault lines are and everything. Here's my point. Right after that, though, it says that God remembered Babylon. Now, we're going to look at uh, in the coming sessions, we're going to look at how God judges the city, physical city of Babylon, at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Because Babylon will be on the rise, it's on the rise right now, and will be on the rise until the end. 
But the scriptures talk about the rebuilding of the city of Babylon, that it's actually going to have a place in the end time drama. It's going to get judged and destroyed by God. Well, in that time frame, the harlot Babylon is going to be a global system based out of a city. So imagine the way that Washington, D.C. runs the United States. That's kind of the base. You know, so a lot of times when people are talking about America, they'll maybe even sneer and go, yeah, you know what's going on in D.C. And they're kind of talking about the hub of all of America. Well, the global institution of Babylon is going to be run inside the city of Babylon. Babylon will be the capital of the empire, if you will. But look what it says. It says that God remembered the harlot Babylon, and now it says he gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Previously, the city, the capital city, had been judged and destroyed, but not the entire global empire. Now the entire global empire is being destroyed. It's being devastated in the same way that the city was treated. Top of page uh, five tells you the passage where God judges the city of Babylon. Revelation 18, 8. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Now God is going to shake all the nations of the earth. He's not going to burn them with fire. All the cities of the earth, they are going to collapse by this crazy earthquake. Previously, dealing strictly with the capital city of Babylon, he burned it with fire. So it burned. Now these are shaken with a great quake. So then when we see the cities of the earth collapsing, this is just such a tremendous judgment. I want you to read with me uh, Isaiah 24, 1 through 6, because it gives us a little bit of a window into what else is happening in this time frame. So Revelation 16 says, the cities collapse. Isaiah chapter 24 tells us a little bit more about what that looks like. You can read with me, middle of page 5, Isaiah 24. See? The Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest and people, master and servant, mistress, maid, seller, buyer, borrower, lender, debtor, and collector. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The exalted of the earth languish. The earth is defiled by its people. That's what's going on here. Harlot Babylon has taken over the planet, has changed the culture, has infected the earth with such wickedness. God can't stand it anymore. And he is now saying, I'm going to fill Babylon with the full fury of my wrath. They have disobeyed its laws, violated its statutes, and broken its everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. The people must bear its guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up and only a few are left. This is so intense. It's what we're witnessing here in Revelation chapter 16. But it's not just the cities. What's shaking down those cities is the same thing that's going to shake down everything. So if you've got a bridge outside of a city, doomed. If you got a, you know, an amusement park outside of a city, doomed. Not even Branson will make it. There's everything's going down. The Lord is going to shake everything that can be shaken and all the infrastructure of the earth, not just the cities, but all the all the way places. The cities are just a prototype for what's going to be happening because it's not like God goes, "Oh yeah, and that one and that city and that one." It's really like he's grabbing the whole earth and shaking it like a snow globe and everything just gets laid waste. 
All right, let's move on to the next uh, section, number five, top of page six. The impact on the islands and the mountains. This is so unthinkable. If it wasn't in the Bible like 10 times, we just have to dismiss it because it's just the craziest thing imaginable. It's, this is so hard to get our mind around. This is the greatest change in topography, even ex, uh, uh, exceeding what occurred during the flood. This is the craziest change in the way that the earth will look and feel. Right here. Revelation 16, verse 20. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. Huh? What's going on here? The earthquake has got such a capacity to shake everything down and level it all out. So this earthquake is so strong, it shakes the mountains down. And it also settles the islands down. You know, an island, if you're just talking straight elevation, an island is a mountain. Think about where the water line is. That island just means it's a tall piece of dirt surrounded by lower pieces of dirt that there's water filling the lower pieces of dirt. Am I making sense? An island is just a mountain in the water. So the mountains in the water and the mountains on the land all get shaken down and they're gone. That's crazy. Look at uh, Isaiah 41, 1 through 5. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew your, their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who's meeting together? The islands and the nations. They're all meeting together at the place of judgment. Who stirred up this one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last. I am he. This one that's being called to righteousness, this is the father calling the son. He, Jesus is coming from the east into Jerusalem. The islands have seen it and fear the ends of the earth tremble. So intense. But it's not just the islands, it's the mountains. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 4. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged place is a plain. I'm telling you, this snow globe thing really isn't a cute analogy. It's pretty darn close. Everything is getting shaken so hard that it's leveling out things that used to be taller or lower. <laughs> it's just kind of bringing things to not that way. Don't have time to go into the forerunner ministry there, but it, the passage that I just pulled that out of, Isaiah 40, you can go look at it a little bit later when you have time. It's actually the forerunners that are calling out, prepare the way for the Lord, prepare the way for the Lord. And it's actually the ministry of intercession that the houses of prayer across the earth and the forerunners that are preparing the way for the coming of Jesus, they're actually going to be perhaps unknowingly to some degree, and just because now I've told you, now knowingly to some degree, they're actually going to be interceding for all of this leveling out because the very passage that we get, the passage every valley raised up and every mountain made low is right in the middle of the forerunner passage in Isaiah chapter 40 that's describing the ministry that will prepare the way for the Lord through prayer and proclamation and preparing uh, the people for the coming of Jesus. Huge hailstones. Let's talk about this. This is bizarre. Revelation 16, 21. There's never been anything like this. And the closest thing I gave you in the last session, give you a, a, a reference verse, but this is just next level. It's crazy. 
from the sky huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men. Did a little bit of homework, and the largest uh, hailstone on record in America is about the size of a soccer ball, which is horrifying. Weighed two pounds. So two-pound soccer ball hailstone. That's awful. Well, I'm not real good at math and volume and density and stuff, and not only that, we're not told how dense this is. So what I'm about to say is pretty speculative, but it gives you kind of a picture. If you stay at about the density of the soccer ball, okay, because I would think if it was the size of a soccer ball and it's made of hail, I would think it would be heavier, just my thought. But there's, there's, you know, air and stuff in there. It's formed up in the sky. If you stay at that same density, we're talking about uh, hailstones the size of truck tires at about 100 pounds. It's 50 times the size of these soccer balls. That is a real problem. That's intense. These are going to be really, really big hailstones. Now, the density could be different. So, I mean, it, I mean you could actually have a 100-pound hailstone the size of your pinky, you know, if it was really, really dense. It's just who knows how all that's going to work. What's interesting, though, is it says that they fell upon men. It's like there's some sort of targeting guidance system in these hailstones to make sure that a bunch of them are actually falling on men. But we find out from this passage in Isaiah 32, it's not just men. It will definitely be men. I mean, they're going to be people. Man, that's one of those where, you, ladies, you want to take it as literal as possible and go, well, sorry, boys. <laughs> um, the, uh, there's going to be, in addition to it hitting, coming down on people, let's not let, not let the ladies out, coming down on people, it says this in Isaiah 32, though hail flattens the forest, hail doesn't flatten any forest ever, never, in the history of all time, Never. Beat up a forest? Put holes in leaves? Knock off some branches? Yes. Flatten a forest? No. What would that take? You'd have to throw giant tires out of the sky, and lots of them, in order to flatten a forest. It says, and the city is leveled completely. Talking about the same hail. I want to give you uh, Ezekiel. Chapter 38 is the final passage that we'll look at tonight, and then we'll break up into discussion groups, and you guys can talk a little bit. But this is another example of what's going on in the Revelation 16, seventh bowl. It's another perspective. This is one that Ezekiel had about the events, and it's intense. Back uh, page, page 8. This is what will happen in that day. Anytime you see that term, in that day... It's a heads up. You're probably about to read an uh, eschatology passage. You're about to read an end times passage when it says, in that day. Most of them. I mean, I can't think of one that isn't, but I'll just leave it open and say maybe there is. But as a rule, if you see the term in that day, you want to be paying attention. It's an end times passage. This is what will happen in that day. My zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground, and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. An earthquake that causes everything to tremble that's centralized in Israel. We were just told that the city of Jerusalem breaks into three parts. That's the epicenter of the earthquake. And somehow being in the eye of the storm was actually a protective grace for the, city, for the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. 
The mountains will be overturned, the cliffs will crumble, and every wall will fall to the ground. What an earthquake. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's uh, sword will be against his brother. There's that chaos judgment that we read about last week. I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain. There's a detail we didn't know. Hailstones. There's the hailstones. And burning sulfur on him and his troops. There's a detail we didn't see in Revelation 16. Burning hailstones on his troops and many of the nations with him. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations and then they will know I am the Lord. Amen. All right, well, let's break into groups. Look how many groups we got tonight. Four groups of seven. And who are my group leaders? Okay. John, okay, so John's in the back. John, keep your hand up if you would. Uh, so we're going to have a group come back there. Caitlin, hand up if you don't mind. Luke's over there, and then Christy, can I get you to move for this way just a little bit? Uh, so get into groups of about seven. Uh, if you've got eight or nine, you're probably doing something silly. So uh, break up into a different group. Let's have some discussion, then we'll come back together for Q&A. Oh, that's great. Okay, so Isaiah 24, uh, one of the lines in there is that they've, oh, they've broken the everlasting covenant. The, uh, the context of what that phrase is surrounded by is all dealing with the issue of righteousness. And so if you, uh, what page was that on in the notes? Make it easy for me to find. Page five. <clears throat> okay, yeah, so uh, the judgments uh, all related to wickedness. So it says, um, let's see, the earth's defiled by its people, point one. They've disobeyed the laws, point two. Violated the statutes, three, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Um, while I am not thinking of a specific phrase of the earth covenant or like the humanity covenant, uh, and there may be something in there that you could be scholarly and find, uh, wouldn't surprise me, honestly. The reference is to the reality of the relationship that God made the earth and said it was good. And then all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the first man, we've now got the entrance of not good into God's good. And there was this uh, desire of God from the very beginning. It's what uh, the end time storyline is really all about is redeeming mankind for the fullness of him being able to dwell with man once again like it was in the garden you know why god isn't here right now because of sin and so even during the millennium god's physical the father's physical presence will not be on the earth but after jesus has millennialized the earth after jesus has had a thousand years of right rule and relationship to the earth after that point the father comes so I think what's being referred to here is all the defilement, all of the unrighteousness, all the wickedness, all the disobedience, all of the going against God, all the carnality, all the wickedness, which found its greatest expression in the harlot Babylon at the end of the age, is this covenant that God has made with the earth. He's like, listen, I can't just start over on another earth. I made a promise to this one. I made a promise to you yokels down there 
that we're going to do this thing right, and I'm going to dwell with you because that's my purpose, but we've got to deal with all this sin issue stuff, which heightens at the end of the age. So I don't think it's actually referencing a specific covenant of which the title we can find somewhere in like Leviticus or something. I don't think that that's the case. I think it's actually just referring to the entirety of God's covenant with the earth to eventually dwell there, but he can't dwell there as long as there's unrighteousness and sin in the land, which is why the uh, Garden of Eden reality is not the current one, but will once again be the reality after the millennial reign? A great question. Excellent. Uh, Luke, how about you guys? It's a great question. Yeah, what's, what's going on with all that, he says. Um, someone find the verse for me, uh, one of you group leaders if you can. The one, it's, uh, it's in the epistles um, where it says that the Lord knows how to keep the righteous in the midst of judgment. Um, find that verse for me if you can. Um, so uh, what's, uh, one thing that we can be sure of is if a hailstone hit a saint with a resurrected body, the saint would laugh at it and say, that tickles. Okay, so it wouldn't hurt the resurrected saint. All right? Now, I think what seems more likely is that they won't, that there's some sort of just, I mean, you imagine Jesus, not hitting Jesus, he's like, oh, dang it. I keep getting hit with these giant hailstones I made. Like, that's not what's happening, okay? He's like, I can't believe I forgot to put on my, you know, hailstone off, you know, today. Uh, So the rest of those that are marching with him are going to receive, presumably, the same protective graces that he is. Just imagine the, the whole purpose of what's happening in the seventh bowl is the completion of wrath. So it's wrath being poured out on wickedness. The least wicked thing in the history of all things is Jesus with his holy saints that are resurrected coming. I mean, so it's like this ju- the judgments are not being poured out on, uh, on Jesus and his crew. They're being poured out on the wicked, which is the whole point of the passage. It says, God remembered Babylon and went, okay, we're going to deal with you finally in fullness across the earth. Did we find that verse? 2 Peter 2.9. I'm going to read that real quick. Because it's a helpful verse. It doesn't mostly apply to this situation. But honestly, how many people in America right now are having this conversation at all? I mean, we are an odd group. Okay? 2 Peter 2.9. Uh, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. And so this is, uh, if you go and look at the passage, the context of it, because we didn't have time to get into it, it's talking very much about judgments hitting the earth, hitting the wicked, while the godly are somewhere right there nearby and are not struck by the same judgment that's killing the bad guy. And this is something that God's really good at. He's, he's able to do it. Galen. Yeah, so I, I love, I actually, uh, I heard what, we were just in these co-op meetings, um, and one of the... Um, one of the co-op leaders said that the way that they were presenting uh, the gospel is that the end times is the, the gospel. It's the, fin- it's the completion of the gospel. Which, if you just think about it, the entire gospel message, for a moment, let's think about it even from a secular perspective, it's all surrounding a king. It's all surrounding a king, and it's kind of his, his backstory. It's, you know, it's his storyline. The king rises. He grows up in a town. He does some things that make him a king. He makes it clear he's a king. But really, the entire uh, reality of his kingship is a future ruling and reigning. 
And so the end times is... Uh, it's the establishment, it's the transition, it's the pivot point of this king from future would-be ruling and reigning to actual now ruling and reigning. And so though I think that it is finished, it is done, it's the same, it is finished. It's, it's absolutely the you know, push pause uh, or push play you know, on where we stopped at the uh, at the cross, I mean, it's like he, he you know, Talisai, he, he's done into your hands. I commit my spirit, and so he, he dies on the cross. It is finished, and now here it is at the end, and it's like now this is the completion of judgment. It's all the judgment that really we got to see. If you read the language about the way God pours out His wrath in the end times, it's the same language of His pouring out His wrath on His own Son on the cross. It's really intense. And so these two things, they're not unrelated. They're very much related. It's the next stage in the gospel message. And so one of the things that we want to do, we want to start to learn, is our understanding of what it, what's the gospel. The gospel isn't just that he came, lived sinless, died, and rose again. It's that he's coming back. And if he doesn't come back, what was all of that about anyway? All of that was the prep work for forever. I, I, let's remember for a second, we're living in less than a blip of a second right now of eternity. From the time of the cross to the second coming is like one second in trillions of years. We're going to look back and we're going to be like, oh, I was there. I remember that one second of time. But we're going to have billions and billions times trillions of years of frame of reference. So when we're talking about the fullness of Jesus's ministry, it's all in the future. I mean, the, the majority of what he's going to do and say and tell us to do and our experiences and the stories we'll tell about him are actually future events. So the it is finished is a very much connected reality. And we want to learn how to communicate when we're talking about the gospel. We actually want to include the superhero part of the story. Did you know he's going to come back and he's going to judge the planet with hailstones? It's like, don't be on the other side of that one. Like... Find yourself in the right spot in the storyline. He's the most powerful man, and he's, he is serious, and he is jealous for his bride. And he is going to come, and we're told this whole story. People love fiction. That's why we escape to the movies. People love the fictional storyline. This one's not fictional, and it's crazier than all the movies combined times 100 times Stephen King. I mean, it's like these are... These, the storyline is the crazy thing. So to be able to invite people into the adventure of the storyline as part of the gospel message, he rose again and it, the angels look at the dudes and they say, this same Jesus will return in the way that you saw him go. Say, so why do you marvel? It's not done. He's coming back. And so it's important that we understand that because it, it somehow makes the gospel realer, louder, relevant, like it just it helps it helps bring everything into perspective but that was always the gospel it's not like there's a new gospel it's the same gospel it is finished it is done and so he's coming great question all right john yeah so uh the question is in relationship to you know jesus came and his lifetime um building up to redemption building up to the cross but we know that his public ministry was actually three and a half years so we've got three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry, and now we've got three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry. The Great Tribulation. He is showing himself public once again. 
and he is going to be bringing about these judgments. But just like his three and a half years on the earth walking around were leading to a moment, the three and a half years of the great tribulation, the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls are leading to a moment. It's leading to, to the fulfillment. And so it's actually very reminiscent of the life of Christ related to his ministry. Now, also like the life of Christ, there was all this build up that you don't wind up with the three and a half year ministry of Jesus unless you also had his 30 years of life first. There's all this buildup towards the end time drama that none of the stuff that's going to happen in the three and a half years of the end time drama of the uh, great tribulation is going to matter or make any sense unless all this buildup happens first. And so there's a very, there's a uh, unique parallel there, I think, which I think John just caught pretty loudly. That was awesome. Um, that's actually part of the storyline that we're supposed to see. Jesus loves, the Father loves to use these number patterns and stuff. And so to see the public ministry of Jesus on the earth now mirroring the public ministry of, of Jesus, if you will, in the last days that leads to the most dynamic Jesus moment, which led to, back in the day, the most dynamic Jesus moment. You see in the, the parallels here? And so, but it's, it's a progression of events that are not unrelated they are, they are clearly related, they're tactical, they're precise, and they build on one another. You know, there were times where Jesus, they wanted to arrest him, he's like, nah, it's not my time. He's like, that's not going to work. So there's a time when you can arrest me, now is not that time. There are, there are these moments that are building up to the crescendo of the cross, and in the last days, there are these moments that are building up to the crescendo of the second coming and the establishment of Jesus' rule and reign on the earth. Great questions. All right, worship uh, team, leader, whoever. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you help us tonight, that you'd help us to understand the book of Revelation, that we'd not be afraid of it, that we would embrace it, that we would not be, uh, we'd not shy back from the amount of details. We'd just sit there and stare at it and pray and ask for you for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We pray, God, that you'd raise this room up as forerunners that understand the message, understand the storyline. God, in your great kindness, help these Saturday nights to matter a whole lot deeper than the conversation, a whole lot deeper than the time of teaching. I pray, God, that you'd allow these to be seeds that go into our hearts that help us to get great understanding that we will be helpful in the final hour. In Jesus' name, amen. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.